0: Thank you for listening, but please be advised that I don't just believe shit I hear on podcasts, and I hope you don't either. Be skeptical and look into things for yourself. If you find that I was wrong about something, the best thing you could do for me is to let me know. You can do that at extinction at gmail.com. Please also be aware of the fact that I do swear, and I don't bleep anything out. So listener discretion is advised. I'm Ruby and this is episode 86 of Living Through Extinction, a short to the point podcast with science and skepticism, environment and wildlife, and stuff I find cool that I want to learn more about. Today I talk about how Republicans like to pretend they give a shit about children, damages in the Alps due to permafrost thaw, wearable tech to help with epilepsy, and the shameful piece of Canadian history known as the LGBT purge. If you've joined me before, then thank you for returning. I really do appreciate you. If this is your first time listening to Living Through Extinction, welcome. I hope you find it both fun and informative. And if you're interested in supporting the show, all the possible ways are listed after the final segment and thank yous. It started as soon as Trump began to campaign. This accusing opponents of child abuse. Since then, the Republicans have pretty much picked that up as a campaign strategy. Anything and everything they don't like, for whatever reason, they find a way to say it's hurting children when it's not. First it was Hillary, then it was trans people, then the gays, then Biden, then books, and now drag queens. Every person, group, or thing they accuse of these things are direct opponents of the Republican Party. When are people going to start to see these things for what they are? Lies! And they say it's about the children, and that Democrats who disagree must not give a shit about the children. Meanwhile, while you are distracted with the lies... Republicans are passing bills that allow the forcing of the examination of children's genitalia at school. This means little girls and little boys, whether trans or not, will be subjected to having their vaginas and penises examined. What is this going to do to the psyche of those girls chosen to be examined who just happen to be a bit larger boned? What right do these adults have to see a girl's vagina? You sick fucks! It's Republicans who very recently stopped the bill to make it so special needs kids could not be hid in schools. It's Republicans who very recently voted to end child labor protection laws. It's Republicans who very recently stopped adjustments to child marriage laws, which would have made a child have to be at least 16 to be legally married. It's Republicans who said that providing school lunches would spoil the children. It's Republicans who vote time and again for religious exemptions to child abuse and neglect laws. Child abuse is not, and never has been, a Democrat thing, a gay thing, a trans thing, or a drag queen thing. But Republicans have stood up for their right to abuse and neglect children again and again. Stop with the social media and look what's actually happening on the floor. They accuse and accuse without a smidgen of proof, and then they vote to hurt children on the reg. These votes are a matter of public record. You don't need to believe me. Go fucking look. The only reason they can get away with this is due to their base being a combination of undereducated and dishonest. With the undereducated, they can make them believe anything they say. With the dishonest, it doesn't matter if anything they say is real or not. They don't care. They just want to win. The only reason they can get away with this is that their base is in no way skeptical, damn it. On episode 11, I talked about permafrost thawing and the many, many possible issues that could result. Permafrost is very prevalent in the Arctic and in mountain ranges. About 500 Arctic villages and cities are located in areas where the permafrost is expected to thaw by the middle of this century. And right now, the Alps are being heavily affected by the thaw, as they are one of the fastest warming places on Earth. The mountain range in the Alps is warming by 0.3 degrees Celsius per decade, which is twice the rate of the global average. To put this in a way you can picture, the altitude in the Alps, where freezing temperatures stayed year round, used to be 11,000 feet. It's now at a record high of 17,000 feet. That's 6,000 feet of mountain that's been allowed to thaw. While the water in the soil is frozen, it acts like a glue, actually holding parts of the mountain together. When this thaws, it can be very dangerous as the soil begins to pull apart and landslides become an increased risk. Mountain huts are located all over the Alps and are important shelters and rest stops for climbers and visitors. They range in size from small buildings that can hold a few people to large enough buildings for nearly 200 people to rest in. The loss of some of these shelters would make things much harder for climbers, if not impossible altogether in some areas. Some of these outposts may reach a point where they just can't be maintained anymore, but for now, many are being taken down and rebuilt on firmer ground. The thawing ground beneath them is causing buildings to tilt, slide, or collapse completely. Once it thaws, there just isn't a stable foundation anymore. Many Alpine clubs from the seven countries sharing the Alps are commissioning research and monitoring at-risk outposts. The Italian Alpine Club is responsible for Europe's highest building at almost 15,000 feet above sea level. It's called the Margherita Hut. The Swiss Alpine Club has announced they will soon be publishing a comprehensive review of all of their huts. When workers went to rebuild the hut in Austria, they discovered a 130-foot-wide sinkhole underneath it. It was taken down and rebuilt on firmer ground, but if they had not gotten to it when they did, it would have eventually gone down, and there's a possibility people would have been in it when it did. Thankfully, it was discovered in time. One hut, called the Forche Bivouac, had the ground under it crumble away and it fell into the river below. Thankfully, nobody was in it at the time. It's difficult because in most of these cases, they can't just reinforce or upgrade the buildings. With the deforming land beneath them, none of that would do any good. They have to be moved completely or taken down and rebuilt elsewhere. Of course, it's not just the high altitude buildings. Cable car poles and access trails are also seeing damage and there are roadways, railways, power supplies, and pipelines in locations that will have to be carefully monitored as the Alps continue to warm and the freezing altitude continues to rise. For Pride Month, I wanted to educate myself on the shameful part of Canadian history known as the LGBT purge. There was a time when sex between two men was illegal. And not just that, any activity that could potentially lead to sexual relations between two men was illegal. So men literally risked arrest just by socializing with other men. They could be sitting at a bar, dancing, or even at a private house party and be accused and arrested. In 1953, these laws were extended to include women as well. Beginning during the start of the Cold War, the effects of this atrocity were still being felt in the mid-90s. The U.S. was taking steps to purge its own federal posts, claiming national security concerns. And Canada, shamefully, followed suit after the 1945 defection of Soviet cipher clerk Igor Gozenko. The revelation that Canada had been infiltrated by a network of Soviet agents made it so it had to appear that action was being taken to find them and weed them out. And so a royal commission was launched. And it was realized that the Canadian government had no process in place to detect these kinds of security threats. So in 1946, a security panel was established. The panel was a small secret committee made up of higher-up civil servants and members of the RCMP. The job of this committee was to identify civil servants whose loyalties might be doubted. In 1948, the security panel gave RCMP investigators the power to search for so-called sexual deviants in all government departments. Of course, in the end, they didn't actually go after anyone who was actually a threat. The people they went after were fucking Innocents. Innocents who were spied on, outed, and discriminated against. Innocents who were fired, demoted, or forced to resign from positions they had worked hard to obtain. Innocents harassed, followed, interrogated, abused, and absolutely traumatized. Even LGBT individuals who had never had any access to any security information were targeted. People working for the Department of Public Works or for unemployment insurance, who had no clearance to any sensitive materials, were gone after. The government of Canada sanctioned the purge and allowed for it to be carried out in the undignified and inhumane ways that it was. So what was their excuse? There were two main claims. One was that anyone who is of the LGBT community has something to hide, assuming all were closeted, I guess. This would theoretically make them easy targets for blackmail by communists, of course. The other was the misguided belief that they had that LGBT people had what they called Character weaknesses. In fact, the RCMP formed the Character Weakness Unit in 1956 for scrutinizing the backgrounds of civil servants for people who demonstrated character weakness. And again, while character weakness was supposed to stand for things like gamblers, adulterers, and heavy drinkers, they really only went after those who were LGBT. Propaganda in the day made it so people were commonly associating LGBT people with communism and spying, thanks to all this. Then we learned some facts. Research was conducted from 1959 to 1962 with the initial goal of trying to figure out if distinctions could be made between LGBT staff who did and did not pose security threats. However, the study showed something they were not looking for. It was concluded that being LGBT was not a choice. This, obviously, made the character weakness excuse used by the bigots obsolete. The researchers used their work to help persuade the security panel that new approaches were required. As a result, by the mid-60s, there were much fewer firings. It still wasn't great, but one was at least more likely to be denied a promotion than discharged completely. The RCMP weren't ready to quit being assholes yet, though. In 1963, they made an attempt to map out the LGBTQ communities in Ottawa with plans to put these areas under surveillance. The great part, though? It didn't work out for them because it reached a point where there were so many dots on the map they were using that it was deemed useless. That's because gay people have always been everywhere, y'all. In 1964, the RCMP interrogated Canadian ambassador to Moscow, John Watkins, about his sexuality for 27 days. The poor guy died of a heart attack immediately after. By 1965 about 6,000 LGBT mostly gay men were on file with the RCMP simply for being LGBT. The next year that number went up to 7,500. The next year it reached 9,000. During this time they photographed people in and around known gay gathering spots and set up entrapments in parks by having officers pose as gay men. One interesting thing I read went as follows. The police befriended and recruited gay men as informers. Lesbians, however, rarely cooperated. Leave it to the women to stand their ground, right? In 1969, homosexual acts were officially decriminalized in Canada. That year, a royal commission on security called the Mackenzie Commission put out a report stating that LGBT employees should be allowed back to work, but... It also said that they should not normally be granted clearance to higher levels. They should also not be recruited for positions that would result in these higher clearances. And they should not be posted to sensitive positions overseas. So, still pretty fucking awful. And there were still no human rights protections for LGBT individuals at this time, so it was still not illegal to fire someone just for being gay. Stances like that made people continue to think there must be something wrong with this demographic. And the RCMP did what they could to make it worse. Unfortunately, many of them liked being bigots. And so since they couldn't go after government employees anymore, they redirected their hunts at their own people, running many investigations into the early 70s. The assholes developed a series of tells to be used to identify gay men. What were these tells? One was driving a white car. Seriously. Driving a white car could get one investigated. Other supposed signs they watched for were rings on pinky fingers and tight pants. For real, y'all. One poor sergeant was caught and removed from the RCMP when surveillance was set up in his bedroom at home. Seriously. I hope anyone listening to this understands that it's the people who set a camera up in a person's private bedroom that should have been punished. But in this case, it was the victim of this horrific act that suffered. Sick. In 1973, Pierre Trudeau confirmed to the world that suspected homosexuality was one of the factors the government of Canada considered before clearing any federal employees to handle classified documents. The RCMP continued their campaign against LGBT people into the late 80s and early 90s, when finally, decades of activism for gay and lesbian rights led to legal changes that forced them to finally change their policies of exclusion. In 1992, the full history was publicly exposed to the public, and the then Prime Minister Brian Mulroney denounced the LGBT purge as one of the great outrages and violations of fundamental human liberty. An estimated 9,000 lives were destroyed because of the purge. People who had been in their chosen career for decades were suddenly unemployed through no fault of their own. They were denied benefits, severance pay, and pensions that they should have been entitled to. This resulted in an increase in suicide rates in the LGBT community, as well as increased depression, PTSD, and addiction. Victims suffered long-time trauma, both emotional and psychological, and, obviously, the devastating economic effects of suddenly and for no reason losing one's job. In 2016, survivors stood up for themselves and launched a nationwide class-action lawsuit against the Canadian government. Three survivors agreed to be the faces of the trial, representing thousands. In 2018, the lawsuit was won, and they were awarded $145 million. $110 million was set aside for victims. A not-for-profit called the LGBT Purge Fund was created to manage the rest. I should probably note that then-Prime Minister Justin Trudeau issued a public apology for the Purge on behalf of the Canadian government in 2017, after the lawsuit began, but before it was concluded. They can't just do what they want with this money. There are strict rules in place. They have until June 30th, 2027 to get it all distributed, both the $110 million for victims and the remaining $35 million to various projects. These various projects are legally required to be focused on reconciliation and or memorialization. Here in Winnipeg, they are working on a display for the Human Rights Museum with some of the funds. I mentioned in a previous episode that they pulled out briefly after some controversy with Museum, but they since decided that the project was too important to not go forward with. So a purge display will be available there in the future. The purge fund is legally mandated to implement four main projects by completion. One is to create a national monument to discrimination against LGBTQ2 people in Canada, which is to include the LGBT purge. Second is to support the development of a museum exhibition, which is what they're doing at the Museum of Human Rights in Winnipeg. Third, they are to address the collection, preservation, and accessibility of historical records related to the LGBT purge. And fourth, they are to work with the Canadian government to enhance inclusion in the federal public service and to improve existing training on LGBTQ2 inclusion. I can't wait to see the monument and museum displays when completed. And that is a somewhat abbreviated telling of the LGBT purge, one of the most shameful parts of Canadian history. We must acknowledge and remember in order to never repeat. Wearable tech is getting smaller and more discreet, while at the same time becoming able to do more and more. Some very positive progress with wearable tech is in the area of epilepsy. Two devices are currently approved by the FDA and the EU for detecting convulsive seizures as they occur or even minutes before they actually occur. One is worn on the wrist, like a smartwatch, and it gives an alert to the patient's caregiver. The other is an adhesive patch worn on the bicep, which does the same. These devices measure for the physiological signals which we know are relevant to seizures. For example, one's heart rate may change several minutes before seizing. This is great. But the prototype put together by Israeli researchers goes well beyond these, by being able to detect a seizure up to an hour before it occurs. This is incredible. This will allow a person to know when it will happen and make sure that they are safe for it. About 30% of epilepsy patients do not respond to any of the medications. These people live in fear, never knowing when one may hit or what they might be doing when it does. For them to eventually be able to just wear a device that will give them an hour warning? That's life-changing. The new system is called Epines and it is a combination of EEG-based monitoring of brain activity and machine learning algorithms. The machine learning seems to be the key. It tracks all changes that occur in the hours that lead up to an event and eventually is able to give adequate warning to that person so they can prepare. And it's shown itself to be accurate and user-friendly. If you've ever known someone to suffer with epilepsy, especially someone who has not been able to find a medication that works for them, you know how amazing this is. I am done for today. Please consider subscribing to the YouTube for short weekly skeptical videos. Thank you for joining me. May your health and sanity continue to be replenished daily. My eternal gratitude goes out to the following people. Jason Martin for helping me get started on this project more than three years ago. I wouldn't be doing this right now if not for him. He can be found on YouTube right now as the Delhi Yeti Wandering Around India. Kathy Rayner for her musical contribution on the violin. Paul Palmer for his musical contribution on the guitar. He can be found at WPG Suitcase Drummer on Instagram. Dustin Harder for composing and recording the intro and outro for the show. You can find him on Instagram at Prairie Soul Music. And finally, thank you to my household for putting up with me. Love you all lots. I hope you will choose to join me again in two weeks for episode 87 of Living Through Extinction. If you enjoy Living Through Extinction and would like to support the show, the best ways to do so are to subscribe and rate and to comment and like positive comments on your favorite podcast player. Or you can help out by following, liking, and sharing on all the social medias. The show can be found under Living Through Extinction on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Pinterest, and TikTok. And under LTE Pod on Twitter and Hive. There is also a Patreon at patreon.com slash livingthroughextinction. There you can earn stickers, pins, masks, and more, as well as help me to plant some trees. If you have any comments, corrections, questions, or suggestions, please email them to livingthroughextinction at gmail.com or message me through one of the social medias.